1: Hey everybody, bienvenidos, bienvenidas. Welcome back to New Books in Latin American Stories. I'm Pamela Fuentes, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Rebecca Jansen about her new book, Liminal Sovereignty Mennonites and Mormons in Mexican Culture. This book was recently published by the State University of New York Press. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Rebecca, it's great having you one more time in this show. For those interested, you can find an interview about Rebecca's first book, The National Body in Mexican Literature, Collective Challenges to Biopolitical Control in our website. Rebecca, we did this the last time, but for those that are listening about you for the very first time, I would like you to tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm Rebecca Jansen. I'm
0: an assistant professor of Spanish at the University of South Carolina in Columbia, South Carolina. I've been there for two years, and my work focuses on um, 20th and 21st century Mexican literature and culture, and at the university where I work, which is called U of SC, um, I teach students at the undergraduate and graduate levels. Um, I teach about Mexican culture, Latin American culture, Latin American literature, and Latin American culture um, at different levels, and now, I, now that I've been at my new job for two years, I feel a little bit more at home, um, and like I know my way around the campus and with my colleagues, and it's been a really nice transition.
1: Nice, good good to hear that. So let's, let's start the interview, and let's talk about your book. Why did you decide to write Liminal Sovereignty? Throughout the book, it is clear that your family history played an important role in your research and writing process. But I wonder if you can tell us more about the questions, moments, or personal stories that shaped your decision. Absolutely.
0: So the book, and I'll start with the title, Liminal Sovereignty, um, came from the question, like, where do these groups of people fit into Mexico? In my first project, I talked a lot about state oppression. So the ways that the Mexican government, through different alliances with unions, and different programs such as land reform, which I think I'll talk about a bit later in this interview, public education, um, tried to create a new kind of people in Mexico. And then at the same time as it was doing this, there's minority groups throughout the country that don't fit this image at all. Um, And how some of them are very well treated and some of them are very badly treated. Um, And so I wanted to know, how does a Mexican state that's trying to develop power throughout the Republic, Um, what does it do with these small minority groups from rather um, less common religious groups or less common interpretations of the Christian religion than Catholicism, which is the main religion in Mexico? What are they doing? And they're so far away from the center of power, um, geographically, as well as mentally in Mexico, as you and many readers may know, throughout Latin America, most power is concentrated in the capital. what are these people doing? What does the government even think about them? Why does the government let them have their own schools, their own way of land holding, their own languages, at the same time as it was imposing its own view everywhere else in the country? So that's what I really want to um, know about. And as you said, um, the reason why I started off with this project was because I have some family in Mexico um, who immigrated in 1948 and I knew that one of my great grandmothers, for example, came to Mexico and is buried in Mexico as are some of my dad's other aunts and uncles. And like, how did these people relate to me? How do these people relate to what I know about Mexican literature and culture um, and the things that I really enjoy reading and learning about? Um, that's where my initial interest came. And then in my field of study, so in literary studies, Perhaps the same is true in other areas of Latin American studies, but um, there's a lot of Mormons. And in many cases, my Mormon friends have served a mission for their church in Latin America and then become interested in it and may or may not remain uh, faithful to their religion or their, their religious upbringing. And um, they also have family in Mexico. And so, and lives really close to where a number of Mennonite settlements are, particularly in the state of Chihuahua. And in the Mexican press, sometimes the two groups are confused. This happens in U.S. and Canada press as well, um, because it's a, oh, unusual group of people. Religion starts with the letter M. Um, And I looked, once I got more into my investigation, I realized that a lot of their experiences are very similar, even though they're not necessarily know a lot about each other, or at least historically, we're not in very close contact. Um, And so as we talk about the book, I'll talk about the research that came out in the book, which is primarily from archives and uh, visual culture. So uh, TV, comics, film, Um, but also a lot of the background to my research came about by talking to Mormon people. So members of the LDS church, I was not able to be with people who are part of polygamous Mormon groups. These are people who are part of the most mainstream interpretation of Mormonism and Mennonite people who live in Northern Mexico. Um, So all that formed a background to the archival and literature, cultural criticism work that I did for the rest of the book.
1: Great, and just to give our listeners some context, could you to explain the arrival of both Mennonites and Mormons to Mexico at the beginning of the 20th century? What was the historical context they found? And also uh, something that you mentioned now in this introduction, what is the role of geography? Because they are in the north of Mexico. So how do those elements play a a role in this story? Um, Geography, I think, is really important
0: to this story. So the Mormons first came to Mexico in the late 19th century. Um, This was a Mormonism began in the early 19th century in the eastern part of the United States, in New York State. And as at that time, it was um, a very unusual religion. There was a lot of maybe kind of mystical experiences that started it. Like it started because someone had a vision Um, and then people became really excited about this vision. But then other people persecuted them and they ended up migrating westwards across the United States and when Utah became part of the United States, um, it was no people were no longer able to live in polygamous families, which is how Mormons were living at that time. And so a number of them went to what is now Canada and what is now Mexico, um, where polygamy was also illegal, but in both cases in Canada and in Mexico, there was not a lot of uh, government intervention because it was so far away from the center of power. Um and in the case of Mexico, th- so this is late 19th century, Mexico is trying to become modern. Um, the president and dictator, Porfirio Diaz tries to modernize the country with railroads um, and better communication and transportation throughout the country in connections with the um United States to the North. Um and Mormons fit into this being American, being able to speak English, they were perceived to be a group that could help Mexico modernize, that could like help Mexico become better. Um, oh, at that time, Mexico invited all kinds of different immigrants and tried to have them settle in areas that where the government needed loyalty, <laughs> so where there were people there, but indigenous people who may not have been loyal to the government or people who were prone to conflict with forces from the central government headed in the capital. Um. Then the Mexican Revolution happens, and a lot of the violent conflict associated with that occurs in um, states like Chihuahua and Sonora, where Mormons were living, and so they leave. Um, We're just going to skip through the Mexican Revolution. I believe that the New Books Network has other podcasts that talk more about that, but briefly summarize. um, Very unstable, and the Mexican government needs to try and recover sovereignty in the north um, once it dies down and once it is so once it establishes a constitution in 1917 and then tries to implement policies in the ensuing decades that come out of the constitution. So some Mormons come back to their homes that they've had um, prior to the revolution. Um, they had been, during the revolution, many of them had moved to the border or border cities like El Paso or Nogales. Um, and... This is in the early 1920s. So at the exact same time, the there's a group of Mennonites from Canada who immigrate to Mexico to a really similar geographical area. Uh, in both cases, the Mexican government is excited to have these people because they're going to be loyal citizens, um, because... They make special negotiations with the government to be able to live in ways that align with their religious beliefs. By this time, these Mormons were no longer polygamous, um, but to be able to live with their own landholding patterns that were a little bit different from um, other landholding patterns in Mexico. The Mennonites are particularly interesting to me at this point in history. They came to Mexico specifically so they could live in colonies um, where they would have a secular and a religious leader um, and then like a large tract of land divided into villages where every village would have its own school in the German language based on the Bible. And this is at the same time that the Mexican government is literally shutting down schools that are Catholic um, or engaged in armed conflict. They get a case data with the Catholic Church because it doesn't want there to be that influence in education. But it's like, oh, in the North, far away from us, for these immigrants from Canada and the United States, who are white, we'll let them do what they will do because of some misguided belief. Well, I believe it's a misguided belief that they would integrate and better Mexico. Um... Whereas from the perspective of these two religious minority groups, they just wanted to be able to live their lives in a way that was meaningful for them and in a lifestyle that is outside of the norm in the countries they were coming from, but and Mexico let them do that. So it was mutually convenient, but I don't think that both sides of these agreements really fully understood each other. Yeah,
1: and this is just paving the way for the next Question Because in Liminal Sovereignty, you explore the complicated relationship between Mennonites and Mormons and the Mexican state. In Chapter One, you look at the interaction between bureaucracy and migration by looking at the cards the government required for resident foreigners from 1926 to 1951. How do these cards are related to a racialized construction of the nation during those years? So at this time, I will let your listeners
0: know Mexico is developing, and they may know already, um, Mexico is developing a philosophy of mestizaje propagated by Jose Vasconcelos, who was in the 1920s minister of education, who wrote a utopian essay in the style of 19th century utopian essays about how he thought Mexico was going to be a leader for the nations because it was going to bring together all of the best parts of different races, but primarily indigenous and European. And this doctrine is very strong. Um, It remains strong in Mexico on a rhetorical level. Um, For example, there's a subway station called La Raza in Mexico City, which seems um, unusual to a foreigner the first time that they visit this country. Um, But you realize that these ideas are so powerful that they make it into um, institutions that people use every single day. And so there's these powerful ideas. And then how do foreigners fit in? Um, Between 1926 and 1951, every foreigner was cataloged by the Mexican government. Um, The process, from what I understand, was a little bit less onerous than becoming a permanent resident of a country today. Um, But it still required significant interaction with a bureaucrat, um, and a bureaucrat would categorize people. So what I do in this chapter is I pulled out the most compelling examples from some of the Mennonite and Mormon cards that are held in the um, Archivo General de la Nación in Mexico City. But this national archive has cards from people from all over the world who are coming to Mexico. It's really cool. And most of the Canadian ones are Mennonites, so it's really easy the American ones um there's some common Mormon last names um so I was able to find those. but unfortunately, as some Mormon surnames are uh also like just generic surnames for uh white Americans um it not as positive that. I found all of the ones that could be found. In any case, there's these little cards that have a picture of the person and then they describe the person's features in incredible detail, like their eyebrows, their nose, their eyes, their chin, their lips. The features vary a little bit with each year. And I think they're based on early passports and police documentation um, that come from the colonial period in Latin America. But they shift slightly as race ideology shifts. There's a separate line for race and skin color on most of the cards. So this is obviously a really important thing for the bureaucrats to do. Um, Some of the other features are things that are quite changeable. Like they have a space for a mustache and a beard, um, which I thought was funny because it's it's clearly something a man can modify with a razor. Um, (laughs) And um, like how a forehead would look. It's just incredible to me. Um, and so how did these features and fit into who the bureaucrats thought Mexico was supposed to be becoming, um, particularly as these bureaucrats, they sign the bottom of these cards, um, and some of them later become prominent members of the bureaucracy or the government, but most of them appear to be kind of people who have no university education, um, because they have no title before their name and they were at the border in cities like El Paso y si Los um, And so when people would enter or leave the country and re-enter um, to fill out this paperwork, they had to categorize them. And we see the cards that I analyze are the cards that I thought were the most erroneous or hilarious. Um, and so like, did you really think that that was that person's features? Did you make them seem whiter because you think whiter is more positive? Or did you try and recast this person's features in a light that would make them appear more like the mestizo ideal, which happened in other cases, like giving people Spanish language abilities they for sure did not have in those communities at that time. Um, Even today among um, American background Mormons and the Mennonites throughout Mexico, the Spanish language ability is relatively low. So certainly in the 1920s, it would not have been high. And then you can also look at them and see like who were kind of the power brokers in these minority communities. So who was probably going to the border on behalf of like a hundred people to get the cards that they needed to be able to legally reside before they would be able to become citizens. Um, because in the period immediately following the revolution, it was harder for foreigners to become naturalized in Mexico. And also a lot of these people didn't want to become naturalized citizens. So it was convenient. be, this was also a convenient way for them Um, to maintain a status without having to
1: go through further paperwork. So just to continue with the bureaucratic structure and interaction with uh, these groups, uh, in chapters two and three, you studied the process related to agrarian reform. Can you give us some context about what is this and what are the meanings of this in Mexican history? And can you also please explain how Mormons were defined according to their economic contributions, but also often considered as not Mexican enough? What's that? Absolutely. So the agrarian reform question is one,
0: it's one of the ways that I believe the Mexican state tried to buy off the peasant population um, without doing anything. Um, So one of the goals of the revolutionary constitution of 1917 was that everyone in Mexico would be able to cultivate land. Um, as Mexico at that time had really large haciendas, um, which are similar to plantations, but not quite the same, um, where people would act as day laborers, but would never be able to own land or really gain the profit that their work merited. Um, So this is one of the central motors of the Mexican Revolution. And one of the central promises of many, many, many post-revolutionary governments, and none of them have been successful. Um, Some of them have been more successful than others. We should acknowledge that. Um, The idea was that people could petition uh, to land, um, or people could petition to gain title to land that they had already been working as a community, as a Nihibo. Um, And so land would be redistributed from people who own what I would say is so much land, my mind cannot even be wrapped around it. and then they would just have small plots of land that would be commu- would be run by this ejido community, but would still have a very close relationship to the state, um, because the state was ultimately in charge of ejidos. Land reform occurred in a number of ways through a number of ministries um, affiliated with the Secretaría de Reforma Agraria, so the Agrarian Reform Ministry, um, and its relationships with various peasant organizations um, and various um, broader ejido organizations, but the type of land reform that's most pertinent to what I look at in my book are ejidos, um, and one way that the Mexican government redistributed land was by doing it with land that was not really good for cultivation, um, and saying, okay, well, you're, because of the constitution, article 27, all land belongs to the nation, but we'll just give you what we know will not cause trouble. Um, And there's another way that people could petition for land. Um, If it wasn't just like, we're a community, we live here, we need land to cultivate. Um, It could also be if there was a historic tie to the land. For example, some groups use colonial documents to prove that this is where we have been living uh, since colonization. It's written down. Um, And so because of that reason, we should be the ones to cultivate this land. That is the type of conflict that comes up with the Mormons. So I'll talk about them first. The Mormons um, are, many of them are dual Mexican-U.S. citizens. And because of their connection to the United States, um, lots of travel back and forth to states like Utah, where there's a high population of Mormons, or other states in the Southwest where there's large communities of Mormons, like El Paso or Phoenix, there's this idea that Mormons are American. And At the time that Mormons first came to Mexico, and even in the years after the revolution, like that was not that long after the Mexican-American War where Mexico lost approximately half of its territory to the United States. So the idea of the U.S. as an invader, also of course U.S. foreign policy, um, creates this idea of the U.S. as an invader. And so Mormons are perceived in some of the documents that I analyze as foreigners, but as foreign invaders, not just American foreigners. And the particular conflicts that arise that I found the most interesting were ones where people were making a claim based on the fact that a colonial document, so this conquistador, Teodoro de Crocs, um, he says, okay, I'm going to build a church here in eight uh, a means of colonial measurement, um, possibly miles or kilometers, but I will allow the colonialists to interpret those documents better than I can. Anyway, he's like, okay, this is the land where these people are living. And so these people had been working the land first for the church. And then when Mexican uh, churches could no longer own land for some Hacienda owner, then the land was sold to Mormons. Um, But these people were able to make a claim to the land as being theirs after the revolution, once the revolutionary governments, um, so after 1917, say, yes, you can make a claim to the land in this way. It doesn't just have to be as a nihilo where you say you need land and there is land. It can be, we have a historical right to it. I thought this was really curious because um, of course indigenous people have um, existed in the Americas since time immemorial, but that they're using colonial documents to prove this from the people who are the first people to try and colonize this very territory. I didn't think it was real, Um, but I looked at it. I saw the documents in the Agrarian Archive um, and in the Mexican National University has um, wonderful libraries that talked about this as not being only in that community, but in different regions of Mexico, this has been used successfully. Um, But this means that there's a group of people who have a historic claim to land that Mormons had purchased prior to the revolution And land title in Mexico is very sketchy um, to begin with, but particularly in the pre and post revolutionary era, like if they would recognize certain types of titles and if they would say, oh, you're a foreign invader, like it doesn't really matter. This land could never have been yours because you're foreign so you shouldn't be able to own land, Um, which was the case for some years um, in the early 20th century, but was not the case in the 19th century. So there's, Um, interesting conflict that arises from this and that, to my knowledge, is ongoing. Um, And so you can read different declarations um, in the Federal Register, the Diario Oficial de la Federación, that comments on anything that happens in Federal Congress or similar documents from state Congresses that show that this conflict about um, a constitutional right for everyone who's living in Mexico to have land is still very much happening today, particularly in rural parts of Mexico, Um, and that a lot of presidents, the two most famous that I can think of are Lázaro Cárdenas in 1934 to 1940 and Luis Echeverría, 1970 to 1976, really ramped this up to try and gain votes. But any president who want, or um, state leader or local leader who wants to kind of gain flexion with rural Mexico is going to do it with this language. And you can see... this um, I don't know if popularity is the right word, but it kind of ebbs and flows depending on who is in power um, and how they try and employ this revolutionary rhetoric even long after the revolution, which we're now at 102 years after it, uh, after the constitution. Who knows when it ended? That is up for historians to debate. Um, But 102 years after this constitution promised people land that there's still ongoing court cases Um, about it and that Mormon people feel like they bought the land so it's theirs. So also two very different conceptions of property ownership. Um, It's something that I just found fascinating. Um, And that among both minority religious communities, so Mennonites and Mormons, um, there's an additional uh, area of conflict around land is with drug trafficking. And um, this is something I didn't get to in the book. It's something I've actually learned more about in the last year or so, but that um, sometimes cartels will buy land or use it just to have it. They won't use it for cultivation, um, but they'll use it kind of as a power play. Um, And the states where this happens are often states close to the border like Chihuahua where Mennonites and Mormons live. Um, Mennonites live in other states as well, but border states or states that have a lot of natural resources. Um, So states that might border oil rigs um, uh, along the Gulf of, not the Gulf of Mexico, that's the United States. Um, States like Veracruz. Um, So it's very, it's a tactic that they use for this that adds kind of another wrinkle to the complexity of understanding land ownership in Mexico. Um, the case with the Mennonites or the cases that I look at with Mennonites are more straightforward. It seems like a group of people in the state of Zacatecas, so kind of north central Mexico, um, wanted some land, they petition; it's supposed to be granted. The person whose land is being redistributed to peasants at the same time sells his land to a bunch of Mennonite peasants, um, who, uh, since this was in the late 1960s, early 1970s, very unlikely still that they would have been familiar with Spanish. Um, perhaps their leader would have understood some of the co- potential complications around land ownership, but again, quite unlikely. Um, and what was so interesting to me about that case. I don't think I need to go as far into the details, but how it sheds light again on some of the bigger questions that I think are important in Mexico, like who has a right to this land? Um, And some of the biggest conflicts in the two um, colonies, so groups of Mennonite villages, have to do with access to water, which um, in a state like Zacatecas, it's pretty dry, and so this was before there was well-brewing technology that we have now, and so access to fresh water was key to being able to farm and be able to live, basically. So um, it's interesting to see how someone in power was taking advantage and positioning two groups against one another. Um, Now, I know I'm Mennonite background, so I have perhaps too much sympathy for these Mennonites that I'm analyzing, but it seems to me like someone was knew that their land was going to be redistributed to a group, to an aquilo group, and then at the same time wanted to make money off of it and sell it to other people. It was like, oh, well, that's not my problem anymore because it's not my land. So someone really rich um, is maintains their power at the expense of other people. And I think that's a theme that we see repeated in all kinds of different ways in Mexican history, um, and not only in rural areas and urban areas as well. Um, and... That's what I found so troubling. And also how, in one of those cases, Mennonite leaders um, develop a close relationship with their presidente municipal, which is like a mayor, but was also for a surrounding area that wasn't only the town, that included some of the the Rome municipality where they live. And so was able to use armed guards to expel people who the Mennonites call agraristas, but I think are properly a Hilo activist. Like they were just trying to live on the land that they were promised, um, that there is a written record that is there, that it is their claim. Um, and Mennonites are a group that, in addition to the other concessions that I mentioned, um, are exempt from military service because of their religious commitment. So um, it's curious again, how, oh, but we want this land. We think it's ours. So we're gonna do something that's outside of our religious beliefs so that we can have this. Um, so, how people develop different kinds of relationships, different levels of power, um, uh, secular and religious. But this happens again throughout Mexico, like which kind of Hilo leader is going to try and ally with which kind of see municipal to make sure his ejido, because they're usually men, um, gets water or is in a place where people can actually grow the crops that they know how to grow. Um, and so, this kind of negotiation is also something that. I saw relating closely to the title of the liminal nature of the sovereignty of the Mexican government in these areas, um, that it was always nebulous and always had to be negotiated. And so who were they negotiating with? What were they doing? Um, And that kind of thing.
1: And I think talking about these negotiations, but in another realm, in chapter three, you analyze some ideas from scholars and journalists about Mennonites. Most of them seem... uh, Seem to look at Mennonites as a problem or a group that somehow is problematic that they did not belong to the nation because they don't speak Spanish or uh, because they uh, kind of that they are not assimilating to that. How, what are the most common ideas you found from journalists and uh, scholars? Like, I mean, these are very old pieces, like, but it is really interesting, and you you made this overarching analysis from it pieces from the beginning to like you covered several decades. So, what are the most common ideas you found, and how did you explain them? That is a great question. So,
0: I read a number of. Um... Undergraduate theses in Mexico. It continues to be very common for a bachelor's of arts or science degree for people to write a thesis. And they're incredible sources of information because they go really in depth on a very limited topic. And so the one that Pamela just mentioned is from 1948, it's about Mennonites in the North. And then the other um, sources that I look at are primarily um, from news media. There's a feature, like in a series of um, magazines about Mennonites from, I want to say, late 1960s, early 1970s. And just other, every now and again, Mennonites appear in the media. Um, And I think the overarching idea that I got from all of this is like, is uh, an idea that I would classify as somewhat like xenophilia. So like obsession with this minority group in a way that's not entirely positive because it's too positive. So most of the time they look at these group of Mennonites who, if you go to a Mennonite colony, they're really beautiful. Um, There's some near in the state of Chihuahua that are really um, well established to receive tourists. So if you want to go, go there. Um, And it's like, oh, these people are so beautiful. They have like order because it's a cultural thing. Everything needs to look ordered your yard needs to look a certain way, your crops need to look a certain way. And so for some people from other parts of Mexico, they see this as being better than the ways that Mexican people might organize their crops, like traditional styles of farming. I don't know about farming. So to me, it all is a mystery. Um, But it's this like overly positive view, which I found somewhat troubling. Um, But then at the same time, like, oh, these people are doing good things, but we still want them to be more Mexican, like to be like the other Mexicans. In the 1940s, um, and even in some of the documents about agrarian reform, Mennonites are not referred to as Mexican, but by the 1970s, Mennonites living in Mexico are Mexican. Like, they're born in Mexico, they're naturalized citizens. So the idea is also that they would come in to this mestizo vision, that they would be part of it um, in a way that I don't think that if the Mexican government in the 1920s had really understood Mennonites, I think they would have known that the assimilation wouldn't have really happened. Um, From my experiences, there's Mennonites in a number of Mexican states, but most of them are concentrated in the state of Chihuahua, um, but also near Nuevo Iliad in Durango is a fairly large community. And in um, a few places in Sacafricas that are very rural and close to places that people from northern Mexico might be familiar with, but other listeners would not be. Um, and in some of these really rural areas where there's not a lot of people in general, people have be- have created informal um, integration and but in other places not at all. So it continues to be like a fascination from the outside with Mennonites um, without really I think getting to know them. But I think that that is from both ways, that in what in the state of Chihuahua, there people are really um, invested in building bridges, um, formally, compared to some of the smaller places. But I think also that that's
1: not what everyone there is interested in doing. So it is, I'm curious what the future will bring. I think this is a perfect moment to talk about chapter four that deals entirely with the portray- portrayals of Mennonites and Mormons in visual representations against the backdrop of the war on drugs. You found through the analysis of cultural products like web comics or television shows that Mennonites are shown as either criminals or deviants, while Mormons are portrayed as innocent victims. Can you give us some examples of this dichotomy in visual culture?
0: Absolutely. So the Mormons that I end up looking at in um, the latter part of the book are Mormons who belong to a number of polygamous groups, um, colloquially referred to as Liberans. So these are not, if anyone who's listening is Mormon or works with Mormon people, this is probably extremely unlikely it would be a church that they would belong to. Um, and these people, I think because they um their lives are perhaps more marginalized um, because they certainly have much less economic power in the state of Chihuahua, these Plymouth Mormons, Um, that they have been forced to work and live more closely with their neighbors. And also they're more evangelical in that they try and bring in other people into their religious group. Um, And one of the most famous cases of, of kidnapping that occurred in their community, made its way into various forms of media. And that's what I talk about in one of the parts, uh, in one of the last parts of the book. And I think that this group of people, um, firstly because they might be more well-known or because it was kidnapping of a young child, that that's why they were seen as so innocent, because this person was a child. Um, And then one of the reasons why this kidnapping case, unlike the other thousands or hundreds of thousands of kidnapping cases in Mexico since uh, the so-called war on drugs was revamped in the year 2000, um, but, and especially in two, from 2006 to 2012, um, is that it was a child who was returned by the cartel to his family, which is so uncommon, but then in, without having to pay any money. That's the uncommon part. Um, but then in retaliation, his brother and brother-in-law were murdered um, so it seems like, oh my gosh, maybe the state actually has control over this area. Like maybe they can actually arrest criminals instead of just arresting people who they think are criminals. Um, but unfortunately that didn't happen. And so I think the combination of hopefulness and then it all coming back to, um, retaliation and, uh, sad end that has happened to so many other people in Mexico, um, Allowed it to reach a broader level of circulation. And so, looking at that case, and then in the broader context of the so called war on drugs, um, I use the word so called because I do not think it has stopped any consumption, exportation, uh, trafficking in general of drugs. It has made some people very wealthy, particularly in the security and incarceration. People who run private prisons, who do things with arms, I think they've become very wealthy. And a lot of people, have been deeply harmed. And so out of all of that context, that there's this one child that represents a momentary hope um, that the state maybe isn't involved in this, the state maybe isn't profiting off of this. Um, That's why it was so powerful. And it captured the imagination of Javier Ortega Urquiri who's a Chihuahua based, like state of Chihuahua and I think the city of Chihuahua as well based writer, um, and Melita Vosch, who's based in Mexico City, and who for a time was writing about, um, violence in Mexico. And the part that looks at visual culture is about Mennonites being criminals or deviants. So, um, I know about five or ten minutes ago, I was talking about how Mennonites were seen as, like, this perfect group that we just wish would integrate more. And I think that because this is in the background, um, that Mennonite's being arrested for trafficking, which has happened, um, is so, perhaps, unprecedented, and that's why it's so exciting. It's like, oh, I thought you people were good, but you're actually just like other people. Um, that this makes for good news. Um, and it also makes for really interesting, uh, web comics and television shows. <laughs> so, um, this web comic, it's called Macbudro. It had like 20 um, installments. And by installments, I mean like one page um, installments online. And in it, it's in Tijuana, which is not an area where Mennonites really go. Um, and it's a group of people selling cheese, which is something that Mennonites are known for. The dairy industry is an area um, where Mennonites in Mexico have made their mark, particularly again in states like Chihuahua. And so it's like these guys in a bar where Mennonites, are thought of as people who don't drink. And, um, it's just so funny that these people are, like, in a bar with gangsters, and there's allusions throughout the comic to organized crime from Japan and Russia. Um, and so, like, they're there with these guys, and they're chopping up bodies to become tacos. It's kind of gross. Um, and so they're seen in this way, and then there's a really funny Televisa show called Los Héroes del Norte. Um, And it's a group of kind of misfits, misfit men who uh, create a band and they pick, they um, acquire a Mennonite member because he's selling cheese at a strip club, which is a place like where Mennonites aren't supposed to go, but he's doing the most Mennonite thing. And he's wearing the stereotypical male Mennonite outfit, which is overalls over a button down shirt and a hat. And then their band reaches a certain level of fame, and even at that point, when he's wearing like blingy overalls, they're red. He does, and everyone else is wearing pants, like you would expect um, from a musical group from northern Mexico. And um, all this to say, like the details to me are fascinating, and I could go really far in depth. But to see, like, oh, this is a group that's like not that big compared to the Mexican population. I'm. Estimating probably one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand people um, throughout the entire country, and the Mormons estimate like five or six thousand who are u s backgrounds and there's about a million Mormons in Mexico from all from all backgrounds so more typical Mexicans um like urban rural indigenous whatever um, there's Mormons everywhere so the people who are making the news are from such small percentages of Mormons in Mexico. And then from this really small religious group, like how come they're the ones who are picked? Um, I think it's because they're a minority. So it's in some ways easier to say something about them, um, instead of having to make a big political commentary say, Oh, well, Hey, that's kind of funny that like, uh, the person when they're like trying to get their passports, this is the Inoes del Norte. Um, like the Mexican bureaucrat didn't believe that they were Mexican. Um, that's a way of commenting on the Mexican bureaucracy and also on like who gets to be Mexican um, and who gets to leave Mexico and go to the United States with their papers. Um, for the Mennonites, who are white, they can go. They eventually get their papers and it's not a problem. And when they get lost in the desert, they're rescued. Um, whereas we know that that's not the case for thousands and thousands of other people. Um, And so I think it's a way, or I read this as a way to comment on some of the really pressing issues that I think the the TV show or the comic or the portrayals of Eric LeBaron, the child who's kidnapped, um, comment on this incredibly complex and disturbing situation, Um, but they do it in a slightly different way than what we might be used to from watching the news or plays or other um, literature or um, political and social commentary.
1: And I don't want to end this conversation without asking this. You just a vast array of sources for your book. Like from the archive, A uh, you, you visit a, uh, you, you, you travel to several places, you have conversations, you, you had your own personal observations. You just, photographs, you just movies. Anyway, as I mentioned, a vast array of sources. Um, Can you tell us which source or story or conversation you had during your research process? Uh, Which one made the major impact on you and why?
0: I had so many wonderful conversations throughout this project. So for several years before I began, um, colleagues, in my field started recommending sources to me um, that they thought I might be interested in. Um, and a few friends who are from Nuevo Ideal in Durango told me about like their childhood impressions of Mennonites, um, which was really quite something. Uh, one of them told me that Mennonites are known for making hamburgers in that part of the state of Durango. Um, yeah, but when I think about um, one of the places that had kind of the most impact for me in trying to piece all of this together, um, I think there are two situations. So one of them, I was staying with a Mormon couple and, um, they hosted me for several days and I had never met them before. Um, I just had emailed with this man's brother who had been a professor of Latin American literature now retired and this couple was also retired. Um, but they were so willing to explain their lives to me, explain about their community, explain about their faith. They took me to church. They took me to a funeral. They took me to a wedding. Um, I'm not Mormon. So you need to be Mormon to go to the, like the religious part of a Mormon wedding, but I went to the party part. Um, <laughs> so that was great. <laughs> um, and that these people and all kinds of people actually in, um, northern Mexico, but particularly these more people who like, they didn't know anything about me. They didn't have to be nice to me. They, were, they just wanted to share a little bit about their life, and I think they were also really curious about Mennonites who live maybe 20 or 30 kilometers away, um, but they don't really have a way to get to know them. Um, some people in their community have found different points of contact, but um, that they were just so generous. I really blew me away. Um, And another situation that I found really powerful, and so I like to keep those stories in my mind as I was writing about these people, where in some situations I'm critical of things that their community is doing, but that they were so kind and generous um, and willing to tell me things about their community so that I could later, you know, they said, oh, you know, someone wrote an article about us this one time, or oh, you should look into this, um, so that I could later kind of look into sources in the archives. Um, and one of my second cousins who lives in um, a colony called Laanda in Zacatecas, um, I stayed with her for a few days. Her husband is a trucker. So he drives all around Mexico, but primarily in the Northern States. And so she's at home. Um, and we don't really speak any of the same languages. Her husband as he's a trucker um, and you know drives and talks to people when he was like doing shipping work. When he was at home, I could talk to him because we both spoke Spanish. Um, But with her, like she spoke a little bit of Spanish, had worked as a migrant farm worker in Canada, so spoke a little bit of English. Um, And I kind of understand low German and kind of understand German. Um, Like I went to church with her. Um, She took me to her friends. And um, again, just to like see how people live um, in a way that is so different from my life um, but that there are some commonalities and again like everywhere that I went um, throughout Chihuahua Durango and Zacatecas to meet with Mormons and Mennonites they were just so generous and gave me so many good ideas and so I hope and also we're very curious about like, I was like, well, I'm writing a book about what Mexican people think of the Mennonites who live in Mexico, that they also want to know, because for them, they also have limited points of contact because like many rural people throughout the world, they don't have as many opportunities for travel, don't have as many opportunities for education as I do. Um, so to try and tell the story about Mexico, where these people live, where these people are citizens of, and I'm not, um, And then also to try and tell a story about these people in a broader Mexican context that I understand because of my studies um, was really a privilege.
1: And what are you working on right now? What are your future projects? Where is your intellectual curiosity going now? Well, I have a lot of intellectual curiosity.
0: Um, (laughs) I am working primarily on two projects right now. One of them, is I would say influenced by your graduate work on sex work. Um, And yeah, it's about religion and Mexican film, but always the priests and the sex workers, there's some connections between them in different movies. So um, I'm looking at some of the history of that. So that I hope will become a book. And I'm also working on, and this, I think, this is a project that's taking a lot longer than I expected, but so does every project. Um, about Mexico since 2000. Um, And there's been so many good human rights laws passed in Mexico and legal reforms that are supposed to create more expedient justice that are supposed to find missing people um, like forcibly disappear people. But that at the same time, this coexists with rampant impunity. Um, And so I'm trying to look at that context um, and fiction and kind of creative nonfiction like cronicas and historical novels that talk about that.
1: Um, so, one day I will finish all of my projects. <laughs> and when that happens and you publish those books, please let us know because I will be more than happy to have you in the show again. It was a pleasure having you today. Thanks for this conversation, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Thank you, Rebecca, and thanks everybody for listening to New Books in Latin America Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Till next time.